With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, I have back fan favorite Mike DiBernardis. We take a look at Q3 in the FCPA world. It certainly started off with a bang with Novartis and never slowed down. We take a look at some U.S. domestic corruption issues. We consider the Herbalife FCPA enforcement action and the Sergeant Marine enforcement action. We take a look at the FCPA Resources Guide second edition. We look into where the DOJ and SEC might be going. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, uh, back for another episode. Today, I have back with me Mike DeBernardis, counsel at Hughes Hubbard. And we're going to take a look at quarter three of the year in FCPA. Mike, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Happy to be back and and happy to talk about uh, what was a very fast-paced Q3. So uh, as I tried to to think through uh, what we might entitle this episode, I just finally came down that it was a hell of a quarter. And uh, it started off with a bang on literally on uh, the on July one, and it never slowed down. And really, Mike, the first thing I wanted to focus in, or at least visit with you on, is uh, Novartis. At the end, the last week of June, Novartis announced, or the DOJ announced, an FCPA settlement with Novartis. Um, and then the first week of July, the Department of Justice announced a FCA. Federal Claims Act settlement with Novartis. It was basically the same conduct outside and inside the United States. Uh, the FCPA part was a $265 million fine, and the uh, FCA inside the United States part was, I think, 500 and, excuse me, $735 million anyway, over a billion total. And so um, many compliance uh, practitioners don't often think about domestic corruption and senior management never thinks about domestic corruption. And I was just wondering, is that now a discussion we can or even need to have? Yes. I mean, I, I think if it was just Novartis, it would be one thing. But you have Novartis sort of in a, a close time with a, a few other domestic corruption settlements. You had um, ComEdison uh, in, uh, I guess, Illinois, First Energy in Ohio, and then just in September, we had uh, Quantadyne, the uh, defense contractor um, in uh, in Virginia, and when you have when you put all of those together, it, it really is a sharp reminder that that low risk does not mean no risk. I, I think that's that's a really key takeaway, and this is a this is a challenge, right? I mean, uh, you you have guidance from every regulator around the world saying you should have a risk-based compliance program. Uh, and a, a lot of companies take that to mean we're going to devote our co- compliance resources to the territories and activities 
that have the highest risks and and leave the lower risk areas uh, alone. Uh, and this is really a, it really is a reminder that you, you can't just leave them alone. That that uh, some uh, compliance controls need to be in place in those spots. And you know whether it's whether it's you know paying attention when you have an important piece of legislation coming down, as was the case with uh, First Energy and, and Commonwealth Edison. Uh, or when there's a, uh, an important uh, tender going out, like like was the case with Quantadyne, um, it, it's it, you know it, you have to have some sort of controls in place, some effort to to check and monitor these activities, or you know the consequences can be significant. One of the one of the big takeaways, as you touched on with Novartis, is we have this interesting juxt- juxtaposition, right, with the, it's with the FCPA uh, and then the U.S. conduct. And the U.S. conduct was, you know, ended up being twice as harsh uh, in terms of a penalty. So uh, hard to say, based on that, that that activity in the U.S. is uh, no risk. And then the uh, the other thing uh, that I would only add to our list of cases, Mike, is that with the um, increase uh, number of government contractors, if you do work for the U.S. federal government, you have to have a compliance program. Uh, and many uh, longtime government government contractors, uh, and you name the industry, uh, they understand that. But the new ones, uh, they may not fully appreciate how robust their compliance program needs to be. And as the federal government expands out its assistance and resources during the coronavirus health crisis, I think many companies now are going to find themselves under scrutinies in ways they have not because they felt they were private, they were not international. Uh, they, as you said, are, viewed themselves as low risk and did not really see the need to elevate compliance to the level that uh, was warranted. And so I think now we're going to have a, a much more robust scrutiny by the federal government inside the United States around compliance programs as well. It's an excellent point. I think you're absolutely right. With the the, the CARES Act stimulus, you have a lot of money up for grabs and a lot of uh, companies and, and new entities and new players getting involved for the first time in taking uh, federal money or being involved with, with federal money. And, and there are uh, expectations that come with that, that that a lot of companies, I think, are, are not prepared for. And if we have another round of stimulus, uh, you know, post, post-election, uh, there's even more opportunity for this. So um, next, I'd like to turn, if we uh, a little, uh, if we can rather, to the Herbalife FCPA settlement. And uh, what struck me there, uh, Mike, was I saw some really superior lawyering, as we say in Texas. Um, and uh, what I really wanted to use this case, though, is to ask you uh, if you find yourself with a serious FCPA problem. I've always advocated you need serious response. And I don't mean go out and do a serious investigation. I mean hire some seriously good counsel. And I know that's your business, and I know that's what you do. But is that a message that you feel one uh, is valid and two really resonates? Yeah, you're 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 giving me a really big opening here to to sell. I, I'll try not to do that too much. Uh, look, there's a lot at stake in, in these cases. So, uh, and and anytime you have numbers and, and potential penalties, the size that we're dealing with here, uh, every incremental advantage you can get can, can be, be uh, hugely important. Uh, you know, 
Herbalife, you know, they had some some of the the premier practitioners uh, uh, in this area as counsel, which which it, and I think it does come through. I think I think you're correct. Um, I think there is there is something very important to having counsel that goes in in discussions with regulators that is credible, uh, has a reputation, because you need that uh, that credibility when dealing with the regulators. You also, you know, can't forget that that although most of these cases, you know, all of the cases with with companies end up settling, uh, that doesn't mean there's no room for advocacy, and so you have to have counsel that uh, has has the ability to advocate for for clients uh, um, and knows when to to exercise that advocacy, and then you know, finally, I, I think one of the overlooked aspects is. Uh, Finding counsel, uh, and, and the good ones do this, that are really a, a good fit and can have the really difficult conversations with the board and the C-suite, because a lot of the decisions that have to happen to help you get the best resolution possible are really tough decisions. We're talking about you know, terminating uh, employees. You're talking about uh, you know, offering extreme cooperation to the government, in, in, and that's not always a natural thing, particularly for for uh, people not practiced in this area. And if if there's hesitation or a disconnect between the outside counsel and and those individuals making the decision, you can you'll you'll see it on the back end. You'll see it uh, in these settlements, and you know it's it's uh, it's easy to put the numbers on it, but. There's a big difference between getting a 25% reduction off the bottom of the sentencing guidelines and getting a 15% reduction when, when we're talking the numbers we are. And so it, it, a big part of that is is that those important communications between the, the lawyers, internal lawyers, external lawyers, and, and the, the decision makers and doing you know having those decisions made quickly because a, a delay can really cost you. You know, Mike, the most interesting thing I found about your comments were – you did not talk about any of the technical skills or capabilities we normally associate with lawyers, being able to do to do an investigation, being able to interpret the law and explain it. You talked about uh, advocacy. You talked about having difficult conversations with uh, clients, and you talked about uh, credibility. And those, uh, to my mind, uh, really are what separates the, the top um, white-collar compliance practitioners uh, from from others. But let me focus just a minute because I was really intrigued by advocacy. I rarely hear that talked about in FCPA or white-collar defense. But um, the, uh, the ability to not simply marshal facts but put together a coherent story for the regulators, uh, I guess what you're saying is, is the regulators listen. I mean, they're going to have their own opinions and views, uh, but but uh, you know, a, a a good legal team uh, can go in and make a really persuasive case. Particularly if you, you're starting with credibility, uh, and then you're moving in, and you're not making you're not you're not arguing just for argument's sake, uh, but making really uh, uh, accurate and, and measured uh, points on behalf of your client. And and look, it, often it's around the margins. It's about uh, well, this particular activity was outside the statute of limitations, or you know, this, uh, this activity based on these facts, we don't think would qualify as a, as a violation. It's, you know, it's, it's not a, typically it's not just a black and white violation, no violation. Uh, but, but each of those things can add up 
and really affect uh, the conduct that's captured in a, in a settlement and the, the total amounts involved. And um, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it, it, you know, you can ask a, a third year law student to, to break down the, the basics of an FCPA case, uh, an F- FCPA violation. It, it, it is uh, where, where you really separate um, the, the very good uh, and experienced counsel is in these other areas, these, these, these more nuanced areas. Literally on the second day of the quarter, uh, July 2nd, the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission very quietly released the uh, second edition to the FCPA Resources Guide. It was originally uh, uh, delivered in 2012, and so it was uh, really uh, due for an update given uh, nearly eight years since its original release. We uh, were able to visit upon about this a little bit in a prior podcast, so I didn't want to spend a, a lot of time, but I was wondering if there are maybe two or three kind of key points you've taken away from it and, and that re- you've really used with discussions uh, with clients. Sure. Uh, yeah, and, and they, they uh, released it at an interesting time, right, July 2nd, right before the July 4th holiday, almost like they were just trying to, to slide it in unnoticed. But, uh, you know, the, the one thing that I think we were anticipating here when this came out was how, how are they going to handle – some of the uh, uh, precedent that's come out now um, interpreting the FCPA and, and really uh, thinking more, a lot about uh, the Hoskins case and, and how the jurisdictional uh, piece was, was going to work. And so just anticipating what they were going to do there. And so w- we, we obviously took note of the fact that, that the DOJ and SEC are really sticking to their guns when it comes to their jurisdictional reach and, and really tried to carve out uh, the, the, decision in Hoskins uh, related to foreign non-issuers uh, and, and whether those individuals had to be an agent of an issuer or domestic concern to, to come under the FCPA. Uh, they really tried to carve that out and make that a, a second circuit anomaly. Uh, in, in conversations with clients, I mean, uh, that, that have asked about this, um, a lot of what we see in the in the update is what you would expect after eight years. Just just updates with more recent case studies, um, you know, fixing some of the language and, and fine tuning. There, there are a couple of points that that we do. I have certainly brought up with clients. Uh, one is um, that there was a slight change in the discussion around successor liability, and and this is always a question for clients when they're uh, engaging in mergers and acquisitions. And so uh, the key takeaway there, I think, is uh, pre-acquisition, robust pre-acquisition due diligence is best, but there is an understanding that sometimes that's just not possible, or at least not as possible to, to be as robust as you would like it to be. In those instances where you cannot do robust pre-acquisition due diligence, the, the revised resource guide really focuses in on this idea of doing robust post-acquisition due diligence. And I think that's really important and, and something we've talked to clients about is even if you can't get everything done you wanted to before the acquisition, uh, you, you should be okay as long as you can, as long as you can and do uh, make strong efforts post-acquisition to dig in and, and make sure there's no problems there. And then uh, the other point that, that we've been talking about with clients is uh, that the in the discussion of the hallmarks of an effective compliance program that that was in the 2012 edition and is uh, again in the 2020 uh, resource guide, 
there appears to be a slight, slightly more emphasis on the area of investigation and remediation as a key element of the compliance program itself, rather than separate from the compliance program. And I think this is important, for, particularly for companies that are just starting out with compliance. Uh, there's a tendency to to view the need to do an investigation and to take remedial measures as a failure of the compliance program. And the resource guide makes it clear that it, it is the the ability to do a proper investigation and take uh, important remedial steps is a sign of a properly working compliance program. And so if you if you take that view, I think it, it allows companies to be uh, a little more aggressive in their investigation investigations and a little more, for lack of a better term, enthusiastic about doing those and taking appropriate remedial steps because it's not sort of a, uh, an acknowledgement that we have this serious failure. Would it be fair to say, um, as listeners to podcast with you and I, Mike, we try to review these on a quarterly basis. And in Q2, we talked about the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And for me, one of the key emphasis was continuous monitoring leading to continuous improvement. It almost seemed like to me that the uh, FCPA Resource Guide second edition was putting investigations into that mechanism for continuous monitoring and continuous improvement but I really like the way uh, you have taken it. I think a next step that it can be used not as a way to simply monitor, but a, as a proactive step to show the efficacy of your compliance program. And if the, if a weakness uh, uh, is discovered, then you can move forward to remediate. Uh, but it seems to me to be what the DOJ said to us in the 2020 update, that they want to see more movement towards monitoring and updating your program on a continuous basis. Absolutely, I think it's it is part and parcel with with that uh, that guidance from June, and you know we we talk about a compliance program that 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 is designed to prevent, detect, and deter, and you know the the this idea of investigation and remediation really uh, hits all three of those because it, it, you know, obviously um, in detecting m- misconduct you would you. Uh, uh, often are, are using investigations for that and deterring misconduct uh, as well. And then, you know, in terms of preventing misconduct, it's important to take these, these lessons learned, right? And you're, you're, it's a constant, every time you do an investigation and you take remedial measures to, to, to fill gaps, uh, it's a constant effort into to improving that prevention piece of the compliance program. Uh, let me change the focus quite a bit now because we had uh, a very rare criminal FCPA plea uh, by corporation, and that was the Sergeant Marine case. Uh, Anyone who read that case uh, pretty much came away with uh, probably what I came away with was this was a criminal enterprise wrapped around a business uh, whose business strategy was based on bribery and corruption. But um, were there some takeaways that you felt were significant or uh, what were some of the key takeaways, I guess, from your perspective, Mike? Sure. Uh, you know, the, the one that strikes me right off the bat is we, we have this discussion all the time about uh, third parties and, and particularly consultants and agents and our consultants and agents being the highest risk uh, area when it comes to FCPA. And every once in a while, you have this gap of uh, six, seven months where there aren't any 
settlements involving, you know, strictly strict use of, uh, of consultants and agents. And then you have a case like this where it, it's just, you know, falls back to the tried and true method of engaging a consultant uh, for, for the purpose of, of paying bribes. And I think um, when we start to get pushback from clients about whether this is still the highest risk area and what, what are the, what are the main risks? It's, it's, you know, selfishly it's from my perspective, it's nice to have another example to to put, put in front of them to say, look, here's exactly why, why we're encouraging you to, to have robust due diligence in place. Uh, the, the other thing is, um, you know, this is, this is somewhat, it's a nuanced and small area, but, uh, you know, the, the, the penalty here, ultimately, I think they, they agreed to pay 16 and a half million or, or something like that, but, uh, it, it was actually much larger penalty, it, even with a 25% reduction off the bottom of the sentencing guideline range. I think the, the calculated penalty was $90 million. Uh, and, uh, the the sixteen point six million came came about after a, a, a inability to pay analysis, a, a pretty robust robust one, and I, I think that's something that um, you know companies often forget about, and and something that maybe maybe I'm being too gracious, but uh, something that that you know I think the Department of Justice should deserve a little bit of credit for doing and going through the effort to do. Uh, and showing that you know we're not trying to absolutely destroy uh, these enterprises, even if even if they appear to be uh, have major problems, um, and and want to want to have a a settlement that's fair and workable. You know, Mike, that uh, and you're absolutely right about that reduction. And kudos to the DOJ for um, good advocacy by their lawyers, uh, as <laughs> we right. talked about. But what that brought up for me was something a little bit different. And one of the major reasons the company was in such dire financial strait was that it couldn't continue to do business based on bribery and corruption. And they specifically called out the lack of contracts and financing that the company had anticipated receiving when they had a more robust cash flow, which they didn't have now. Um, and it reminded me, uh, years ago, I met someone who had worked at Panalpina uh, during the day. And he said the biggest cost to Panalpina was uh, not the fines and penalties. It wasn't even the reputational damage. It was they could not replace the business they lost because they only knew one way to do business in Africa. And uh, the company never recovered from that. And this really seemed to me to be the situation for Sergeant Marine. And we don't talk about very often that when a company is penalized for an FCPA violation, they can no longer do business in that manner. And you're going to lose some revenue stream, whether it's ongoing or if it was a a one-time contract. So I thought that was an interesting point uh, as well. But you're absolutely right on the um, inability to pay. And uh, we didn't receive full information on the calculation the DOJ made, but they said they looked at it uh, very uh, in a very robust manner, and even the trial judge who approved the criminal plea commented on it on the DOJ's robustness on that. So, um, if you find yourself in that sort of financial condition, it's certainly a one tool you can at least consider. That's right, and 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 it, it's a great point too, Tom, about the the Panalpina uh, case, and you know, for Sergeant Marine, they were they were doing business with. 
uh, in some really tough environments. We were talking about in Venezuela with, with Pedavesa, with, with uh, Petrobras in Brazil and uh, Petro Ecuador. Uh, and, you know, uh, you can certainly imagine the scenario where they've been, their business with those customers has been based entirely on these corrupt schemes. And when those corrupt schemes dried up, uh, th- you know, their relationships dried up, their, essentially their entire, uh, they lost three uh, incredibly lucrative customers. Earlier in the first part of the quarter, we had a relatively small uh, SEC FCPA enforcement action involving uh, Alexion. And um, one of the things I've really come to appreciate, Mike, is these relatively small, once again, SEC enforcement actions, but they have a lot of detail in the cease and desist order and a lot of sort of into the weeds of what the compliance failures were and what a company needs to do. And I was wondering if I could maybe get your thoughts or takeaways from that case. Uh, absolutely. I, I agree with you. I, the, these smaller, uh, and, and that term is, is obviously relevant, I mean, uh, relative, right? That's uh, what, what might be small to one is, is not so small to others. But uh, these, these books and records, SEC cases, uh, they do have some really interesting detail, and, and especially because they make an effort to talk about the control failures, uh, as, as that's, that's what they're, they're charging them with. Uh, for, for Alexion, I think one of the key takeaways for me is it highlights the importance of having a, a strong internal audit function that can work sort of in collaboration and cooperation with a, with a compliance program, because a lot of the failures uh, here and, and that were described in that case are, are things that could and should have been uh, pretty easily identified through a, a, a normal internal audit. We're talking about, you know, reimbursement of expenses without any underlying documentation and uh, paying invoices from consultants uh, that are, you know, that, that are, you know, one word invoices, things that if you, if you have an internal audit that's working sort of in collaboration with a, with a compliance department, you could really do a good job of, of identifying quickly and, and ending the practice. And, you know, in this case, it, it, it instead of that, it, the, the conduct went on for five years before, before it was halted. This year has been the largest uh, amount total FCPA settlements ever. We, of course, had the largest international anti-corruption settlement ever with Airbus. We're having these massive cases. Um, I think that may have surprised people uh, that we would continue to see this. Others perhaps less surprised. But we seem to be in an era of continued, at least aggressive, FCPA enforcement you and your colleagues are, are a lot closer to the front lines of this. Do you still see this sort of aggressiveness, both from the massive cases down to the to the much smaller cases as well? Uh, I think we we anticipate uh, steady activity. Um, you know, a, a lot of the I, I try not to draw try not to draw too many conclusions from sort of the timing of these uh, settlements and the fact that you know we had this massive case of Airbus in, in the beginning of the year and, you know, just recently with, with Goldman is another just huge, hugely important and, and, and huge in, in, in dollar figures settlements. Um, but I think we certainly anticipate uh, just continued steady stream of enforcement. And look, you know, when, when the new administration came in in 2016, there was a lot of talk about whether 
you know, the Trump administration might dial back FCPA enforcement. And there's there's rumors that uh, there was an attempt to, to shrink the, the FCPA unit at one point. But uh, the, the fact that this level of enforcement has continued uh, through through that administration, one that, you know, where the president was sort of openly uh, an open opponent of the FCPA prior to taking office. Uh, I think th- that the fact that it's succeeded, if, if you will, through that administration uh, really is, is a, as clear a sign as any that this is, this is just going to continue as we move forward, whether it's through, through many smaller settlements or, or, you know, some of these larger ones. I don't know, but but uh, continued enforcement is, is certainly on the menu. Well, Mike, I hope we can come back after Q4 and maybe put a, a ribbon on the year. But uh, as I started out this podcast, it was a hell of a quarter, and uh, I'm even more convinced so after talking to you. So thanks again. Thanks, Tom. It was fun. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions on this episode, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast and iTunes as would help us increase our rankings and expanding our listener base for the oldest podcast in compliance. If you have any questions you'd like explored on this podcast, please send them to me as well, or you can leave them on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you'll join us again next week where we take up another issue in FCPA and compliance. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.